Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 109, April 17th to April 23rd, 1863. Last week, we were pretty rapid fire with the events from all over the country. We talked about Strait's raid into Alabama, Nathan Bedford Forrest countering his thrust into the South. There was action in support of moves to help Grant in Louisiana, which is a common theme for today. We have Longstreet occupied at Suffolk, which is going to pose problems, and we also had action in Tennessee. This week, we are going to head briefly to Virginia to check out a Confederate raid which is connected to what is about to happen at Chancellorsville. First, though, we need to talk about the main event in terms of supporting actions for Grant's move to get to the same side of the river as Pemberton. We need to talk, of course, about Grierson's raid. But before we do that, just a quick plug for the Patreon once again. The month of April we have here is a good month to pair, particularly this episode, with the John Wayne movie, The Horse Soldiers. So there is a movie review that should be posted to the Patreon. And of course, if you want to see how that movie compares to the real historical events, and it's, it's very loosely based, so we should take that with a grain of salt. But if you want to hear about that, then the link to the Patreon is in the show description. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. Let's begin this week by revisiting the strategic situation in the West. Grant has run out of options, as you recall. All attempts to crack the nut that is Vicksburg have failed thus far. The general has been stymied and is admittedly running out of options in time. His troops are getting hit with disease, and it has taken its toll. Now, taking Vicksburg from the landward side has always been the goal, but at one point, a frontal assault was seriously considered. Grant would realize that this would involve heavy casualties, and it had a higher chance of failure. Failure is exactly what he cannot afford. With the inactivity and inability to make a real headway, there are many who are calling for Grant's removal. This is where we get a lot more rumors about Grant's drinking. It is possible Grant did drink, some, but most reports call his manner more jovial. So if Ulysses is guilty of simply being a happy drunk, well, I don't really see too much of a problem with that. But obviously, if you have somebody who's at the helm of your army and has many lives in his hands, that could also pose a problem, especially when compared with the sort of teetotaling attitude of some of the members of government. There are a lot of sources that actually go back and forth with Grant and his drinking, just to kind of throw that out there. There are some that are more sympathetic. There are some that are less sympathetic. I've even seen some that say certain actions that he does is because he is intoxicated. I think we can safely say that the middle ground is probably the most reasonable in that he probably did drink a little bit. Was it out of control? Most likely not. So we can kind of 
uh, think about that moving forward. In 1863, there was real political pressure for Lincoln to remove his general. Bold action was going to be necessary for Grant to retain his position, which is where the southern route opened. To be able to make this move a success, it would be necessary to have a distraction for Pemberton and the Confederates. We already talked about Strait's raid into northern Alabama, but let's talk about one closer to home for the Mississippi River defenders. So Strait's raid with his mule cavalry, as well as other operations, some conducted by William T. Sherman, despite his disagreement with this course of action, were going to be diversions for the main diversion. So, I know that's complicated, but stick with me. Stephen Hurlbut, who you remember from Shiloh, was commanding near LaGrange in Corinth. He would be instructed to unleash a cavalry raid that would hopefully continue to draw the Confederate attention away from the main Union operations. This was open now as Forest Cavalry had been dispatched to catch the mules in northern Alabama. Hurlbut would select Benjamin Grierson for the task. On paper, he may not have been the best selection for such a heavy undertaking, although the plan was originally to raid into Mississippi and then return to the north. It would not be until later iterations that the cavalry would continue all the way to Baton Rouge. I've often mentioned how I am fascinated by those kinds of men who rise to the occasion and who may seem ordinary without that ability to do so. Gerson was just that. He had been kicked in the face as a child by a horse, probably an interesting omen, considering he went on to be an extremely effective cavalry officer. He had failed in business, his primary passion not making enough money to make ends meet, and by the time the war begins, he is forced to live again with his parents, trying to support his wife and children. Gerson was a former music teacher and failed general store owner. He had been born in Pennsylvania to Irish immigrants, but grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, before relocating to Illinois. Earlier in the war, he had served on the staff of Benjamin Prentiss, who you should also remember from Shiloh. Not agreeing with Prentiss, when the opportunity to get an independent command presented itself, Gerson would jump at the opportunity, becoming a colonel in the 6th Illinois Cavalry. He had ascended to brigade command by 1863. After the war, he will go on to command the 10th U.S. Cavalry, the famous Buffalo Soldiers. In many ways, the brigade was also a good choice as well to participate in the raid. The 6th and 7th Illinois, as well as the 2nd Iowa, were all veterans by 1863, involved in conflicts with guerrillas from Kentucky and Tennessee. I think perhaps they may have drawn from their tactics as we will see from events as they unfold. Gerson and his 6th had also pursued Van Dorn following the Holly Springs raid. Their operations around Memphis made them well known to Grant and Sherman, both holding their commander in high regard. But despite selecting the right men for the job, there were some delays. Known critic of Grant and General Charles Hamilton was originally in overall charge of the operation. 
Hamilton is upset at McPherson's elevation to Corps Command, which is why he threw out some rumors that Grant was on the sauce again. Grierson would be removed from under Hamilton, Hamilton eventually resigning and placed under Sui Smith, a more agreeable choice. This action will open the door to one of the craziest raids and one of the craziest stories I think of the war. Taking a crack at the railroads was going to be key to determine success of the operation. As we have mentioned before, with less railroads, that meant that for the South, they became that much more crucial to reinforcement and resupply. It could be a prelude to northern operations coming from a different direction than where Grant currently sat. Well, we should point out that there is in fact a Confederate army spread out across Mississippi. There was positivity from the federal perspective, though, as Earl Van Dorn was removed to Tennessee and Forrest, as mentioned, was occupied. As a result, there would not be quite as many units of cavalry who could potentially mount a pursuit of raiding Yankees. A more serious threat would be infantry or militia blocking the route of Gerson and ending his ride through Dixie. Furthermore, Gerson was away on leave when the jump-off date was decided. He received his orders at home and had to return in time to take command of the brigade. His immediate subordinates were Colonels Reuben Loomis of the 6th and Edward Prince of the 7th, as well as Edward Hatch of the 2nd Iowa. The latter of those three names was perfectly ready to begin the raid without his commanding officer, wanting a little bit of glory for himself, and that's going to kind of play into our story as we will see. The cavalry were in good spirits as they set off from Tennessee and into Mississippi. Traveling light, they would live off the land as much as possible. In fact, Grierson would make a habit of stopping at plantations for the purpose of resupplying his men. Plantation owners were less than thrilled with this prospect. Reportedly, during the acquiring of supplies, one such plantation owner was particularly objecting and would continually go on about how the Yankees should just slit his throat and be done with it. Grierson amusingly had an orderly ready to oblige, which must have been a funny joke for the Union boys, but I would imagine not so much for the Southern citizen. Generally, though, the column would be instructed not to harm civilians. Obviously, this could have been done for practical purposes as well as humane. It actually brings up two great points that I want to mention as well, is that with the amount of supplies that they could potentially get, they're going to be riding through an area in Mississippi that has not yet really been touched by the war. You remember that Grant had advanced a little bit into Mississippi, and then Holly Springs happens. He has to pull back out, and in so doing, he actually gives the order to destroy as much in terms of supplies that could go toward a pursuing Confederate army. So that area is a little bit picked in terms of foraging and whatnot, but the area in which they are going to be moving through, it's going to be feasible to live off the land. In addition, there are plenty of citizens who are going to be less than thrilled with the war and how it's progressing. And remember, we have talked about that before with both North and South. There are citizens who would fall into that category. But the less that civilians are harmed, the less damage that you 
make to their personal property, you know, albeit you will be taking the enslaved individuals away from them, but the less that you can do in terms of making an enemy where before in 1861 you were definitely the enemy, now maybe not so much, but if you had any kind of reprisal on a civilian in any such way, then you're greatly outnumbered by the amount of men that the Confederacy has and the civilians, and that could make you public enemy number one. So you don't want that to go toward any kind of potential propaganda that could make sure that the raid fails. A group of scouts under Richard Serby would be employed by Grierson as he proceeded deeper into Mississippi. The set of nine would wear civilian or even captured Confederate attire, giving them ease to move around the country. Called the Butternut Gorillas, this job was very dangerous, as if they were caught, they would most likely be executed or lynched by the populace. Colonel Abel Strait had actually received orders not to do this on his famous mule raid. Accompanying the column were going to be Horse Artillery, Battery K of the 1st Illinois, perfect for providing the kind of firepower, but also mobile action the raid would need to be successful. If the cavalry did run into a problem, it might just be solved with six two-pound woodruff guns. These weapons were extremely durable and could be pulled with only two horses, making them the perfect cannon to accompany the raid. At the time of the kickoff of the raid, it should be mentioned that all other diversionary actions are in motion. McClernand and McPherson are making their way south from Milliken's Bend to hard times. Porter and his gunboats are going to gear up to assist in rendering Confederate defenses to the south. Sherman and his corps are going to demonstrate before the defenses of Vicksburg to confuse the defenders there. Frederick Steele is going to advance with some men into northern Mississippi. Soy Smith is going to demonstrate. Strait and Dodge have already been mentioned, and they're moving into northern Alabama. It's kind of like one of those elaborate videos showing dominoes or something that are all connected and have multiple things happening, but ultimately are ending in one place. For Grierson, the overall objective of the raid was going to be the Mississippi town of Newton, although there were other targets that could potentially present themselves. Newton lay on the east-west southern railroad that led to Vicksburg in the lifeline of the city. Southern is the name of the railroad, just to clarify here, and it runs east to west. Effectively, it connects Vicksburg to Jackson, Mississippi. Disruption there would be key to raising the Confederate alarm. Additional railroads would also be a target. Telegraph destruction was going to be important as well as the destroying of any military stores or facilities that could go toward the southern war effort. This would include manufacturing facilities for foodstuffs and clothing. As we have mentioned, Gerson would be deep into Mississippi, so the route of escape would prove an issue. Moving on Baton Rouge was considered the least likely route of success, but there were other issues with the alternatives. These included trying to link up with Grant or getting naval assistance on an evacuation, both of which were uncertain in their outcomes. 
if you think about it, it sort of makes sense that neither of those are going to be really feasible because you're not going to be in touch with either the Navy or Grant's army. So it would be hard to coordinate that. Gerson's raid got off swimmingly enough. After passing through the town of New Albany, splitting the command briefly, he was able to ride to Pontotoc with very little incident other than a brief exchange of fire with partisan rangers, seeing one rebel dead. Moving further south, his command bypassed the town of Houston. Gerson would realize at this point that his command was not 100% up to the task. There were some men and horses who were not physically capable of making the journey. Because of that, he would create a force protected by one artillery piece to return to LaGrange. Colonel Hatch was upset. Most of these men were in his second Iowa. They moved back through Pontotoc at night, which added confusion to the Confederates, who by this point were starting to mount a defense. Cavalry under Colonel Clark Bartow was giving them chase. Bartow was born in Ohio, but moved south, becoming a strong secessionist. In 1863, he commanded General Ruggles' cavalry. Ruggles, like the already mentioned Hurlbut and Prentice, you remember we met at Shiloh. Bartow came close to capturing the sick men as they made their way back north. Continuing south, Gerson would have another trick up his sleeve for the rebels. Colonel Hatch would be dispatched with his Iowa cavalry to the east heading toward the Gulf and Ohio Railroad. This was part of the main objectives that were laid out by Smith, the Central Mississippi Railroad to the west actually already having been damaged. Play smash and grab with the railroads was how one private described it on the advance. On this route, they would actually double back, making it seem like a stronger force was heading that way. Bartow would nip at the heels of the 2nd Iowa, hatching a plan to capture these men with a charge, but the Federals were armed with Colt repeaters, and crucially, one of the artillery pieces, and at the cost of none of their own, Northern men were allowed to escape. This would be part of the reason that the 2nd Iowa was chosen for this task, because they were the only regiment armed with repeaters. The rest of the regiments armed primarily with breech-loading carbines. Colt repeaters were not very efficient when it came to loading, and were more prone to misfires, but I think they are at least one of the cooler looking weapons of the war. Now Hatch, if you remember, had wanted to lead the expedition originally, and he was a little bit ticked off that a lot of his men had been sent home. This could have played into Gerson's decision making, sending Hatch on this independent mission. While Hatch did not do damage to the Gulf in Ohio, he was able to dissuade Bartow and his cavalry from continuing to attack, and also convince them that they were a larger force because of their rate of fire. Hatch was an experienced officer who made his way to Oklahoma, destroying a regional railroad there. He then moved in the direction of Tupelo, making sure the Confederates were not so fooled as to not mount a pursuit. With their forces converging, the 2nd Iowa would move back to LaGrange after a 10-day jaunt in Mississippi. They performed their task well of drawing the rebels, leaving the path open to Newton. 
Hatch would not be idle. He would actually command a supporting brigade that could be possible if Grierson had doubled back and tried to make it back to northern Mississippi. In the meantime, the main column had proceeded to Starkville, burning a leather facility there. Grierson would dispatch a Captain Forbes to continue to the Gulf in Ohio at Macon before continuing to Louisville, Mississippi. Two men were also dispatched for the same purpose, more importantly, cutting the telegraph lines. These men would have their own adventure, miraculously rejoining the main force further south, having failed in their goal. Secrecy was the name of the game for now. Gerson would give his men little rest as he approached his destination. The cavalry had to pass through swampy terrain, making their passage difficult. As they spilled out into the bottomlands, it would be much of the same. The mud would be a little bit of a blessing, though. It masked their blue uniforms, making civilians believe they were Van Dorn's cavalry, returning to chase down Grierson. Some would roll out the welcome wagon, cheering and providing foodstuffs. But word was still spreading that the Federals were running amok. Many were fleeing in all directions to get away from the marauding invaders. Militia actually set up at the town of Philadelphia. In terms of a, an event that could provide failure to the raid, this was one of the top on the list. The militia was not so formidable, but they were planning to burn a key bridge. If the raiders were trapped without a bridge, it could have been a real problem. Serbi, as well as the 7th Illinois, were able to rush the town, the militia not really willing to put up too much of a fight. The goal of the raid would soon come into sight. Gerson would send Captain Blackburn and Serbi scouts ahead as he approached Newton. They would secure the telegraph office. As a result, this would allow for a clean seizure of the town, Newton having no garrison stationed. The raiders were in luck, with two trains coming into town. Gerson was able to capture these trains and do as much possible to the track and the locomotives. Passengers were not harassed. Mission accomplished, Grierson would continue south, unwilling to risk any of the routes taking his column back north. In the meantime, Forbes and his three dozen men would find their way to Enterprise. They had a tougher time, one of the Butternut Scouts being killed during this journey. Enterprise had a large garrison, and Captain Forbes would pull a ruse in order to escape. He would say that he was coming from General Grierson, giving the Illinois Cavalry Officer a field promotion. After demanding a surrender, the Confederates would elect an hour to think over the proposal. During this hour, they would skedaddle, Colonel Prince remarking that they never received an answer from the rebels, who, very well, may have surrendered. Grierson's route would take him further to territory that was not so stalwart for the Southern cause. It is interesting to see some towns offering only a token resistance before helping the Yankees. The column was able to continue to use deception to bewilder any attackers. By this time, Pemberton was giving too much attention to catching Grierson and his raiders, as was the Union intent. Twelve days in, the Confederate general was shifting forces, 
although at this point Grant was assembling troops at hard times for a potential crossing. This was to be set for April 28th. Wirt Adams was going to set out with cavalry to harass or ambush the Illinois regiments. Colonel Prince was able to secure a key ferry at the Pearl River by saying he was of the 1st Alabama. Shortly afterward, there arrived a message to destroy the ferry, which would have been a major setback to the Union cause. Prince would go on to raid Hazelhurst, disrupting the rail lines there. Serby scouts continued to do good service by giving false information in front of rebel officers at a telegraph line before cutting it. Forbes and his detached company, meanwhile, was trying desperately to catch up. They would even advance word not to burn any bridges, as it was hampering their progress. They would finally catch up at the Pearl River. But now, Gerson had a decision to make. He could continue west and try to get to the Mississippi River. It would be to try to link up with Grant, but there really was no way to make sure Grant had in fact landed. The cavalry could hear the artillery exchanging fire with Porter, but it was unclear what this meant. Moving down to Baton Rouge was going to be the best bet. Bert Adams was starting to skirmish with his cavalry and had set up to block that route, so it made sense that he should take a less than obvious escape. Deception was necessary to make the rebels think they were headed back in that direction. There were further Confederate forces looking to block him, though including 2,400 men from Gardner's command. Unfortunately for the Illinois regiments, the path to safety would not be easy and cause some hard riding. Over the Tickfaw River was a bridge known as Walls. Partisan rangers from Louisiana and Tennessee cavalrymen guarded the bridge. It was Gerson's intent that they get past the obstacle using the usual deception. Lieutenant Colonel Blackburn rashly charged the bridge, taking fire from the rebels behind. Blackburn was mortally wounded as a result, and Serby seriously wounded as well. Artillery would scatter the partisans so that the column could continue. Unfortunately, the wounded were left behind in a nearby plantation. Serby was made sure to put back on his blue uniform before doing so, though key to note. The main force would push on, facing another obstacle in the Amite River. There was a rebel force station there, but they were not currently present, an incredible oversight by the Southerners. Gerson would seize the opportunity after a rapid advance, capturing a rebel camp and taking 40 prisoners. Additionally, they would cross the Kamite River and capture additional Confederates, the last real issue before safety. Outside of Baton Rouge, the regiments would briefly stop. Gerson would play the piano to keep himself awake in a plantation while his men made contact with friendlies. Many of the men were sleeping in the saddle when they finally made it into the city. In tow were prisoners and escaped slaves who had followed the Illinois men on their journey. General Auger at Baton Rouge would insist on having a parade for the victorious soldiers. But what really did the raid mean? It was probably one of, if not the most successful Union cavalry raids of the war. Eighteen days Gerson and his men had spent in Mississippi. 
During that time, they had done irreplaceable damage to the railroads, destroying two locomotives and almost 100 cars. 1,500 mules and horses were captured, as well as 1,200 enslaved individuals freed and numerous prisoners taken. All of Pemberton's available cavalry and potential reinforcements that could have assisted in defending against Grant were all routed elsewhere as a response. Especially when you have an enemy army that is looking to make a landfall on your side of the river, being able to locate that army quickly and efficiently is going to be key. And without cavalry, Pemberton is not going to be able to do that. So even if we strip down everything else, just the fact that the cavalry has all been moved elsewhere by both Grierson and Straits raids, there I think lies the success. To the overall Union war plans, it would prove invaluable. We have also a Confederate raid in West Virginia this week, the Jones and Bowdoin raid. We actually mentioned this in connection with Lee's operations in Central Virginia. A cavalry raid to hit the Baltimore and Ohio would take the pressure off of the Rappahannock line and might have made Hooker divert troops. In addition, West Virginia was coming into the Union as the 35th state. A setback to the provisional government could delegitimize them and swing support back to the Southern cause. Now, this probably was not a realistic goal because those individuals in what is going to become West Virginia are not going to be in lockstep with the rest of Virginia. Key supplies could be captured. That would be important for the Southern cause as well. The main concept of the raid was actually thought up by John McNeil, who you remember we introduced when we talked about McNeil's Rangers. Specifically, there were key railroad bridges for the B&O that could be broken, severing the lifeline to Washington. Grumble Jones was sent from Jeb Stewart's command. He would combine with John Imboden. Imboden was a native of the Shenandoah Valley, a lawyer and member of the House of Delegates before the war. He will operate a cavalry force successfully in the valley for the majority of the conflict. Afterwards, he will return to being a lawyer, moving to Richmond, Virginia. Jones would take a contingent of around 2,000 men on a northerly route, with Imboden and 1,800 men taking a more southerly approach. Jones and his contingent would find themselves near Oakland, Maryland, where his men would burn a railroad bridge and damage track. One of the main objectives was going to be at the West Virginia town of Rollersburg, where there was a key set of bridges over the Cheat River. Destruction of these crossings was said by Lee to be worth an army. But Jones was hindered by the terrain. He developed a several-pronged assault, but was bested by some 250 West Virginia infantrymen. These men also used artillery posted on a position called Cannon Hill to repulse the Confederate assault. Jones would withdraw, not knowing that so too did the Federals, worried of being cut off. Jones would be disappointed by one of his subordinates, a Colonel Green, who would be court-martialed for not completing a pincer movement on the town. So the Cheat River Bridge was not destroyed, a main failure of the raid. 
Jones would continue through northern West Virginia, actually occupying what is present-day Morgantown and sending men to raid into Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, Imboden was having some success taking the more southerly route. He was able to skirmish with Union troops, eventually leading to the capture of Buchanan and securing of supplies. This force was also able to capture Philippi, but declined to attack the more heavily garrisoned Clarksburg. Imboden would continue to operate in West Virginia, at one point linking back up with Jones. A bridge over the Mongahela River was destroyed, which was important to the overall success to the raid. At Fairmont, Imboden's men would burn the library of the provisional governor, Francis Pierpont. An oil field at Burning Springs would also be severely damaged, with that facility unable to operate again for two years afterward. Many of the troopers would write about the massive flames that were produced as a result. Eventually, the operation would come to a conclusion at the end of May. Overall, the raid was over a thousand miles trekked by the rebels. 4,000 head of cattle, 2,000 horses, and 1,000 small arms were acquired. In addition, there were some 400 new recruits joining the Confederate cause. There would be a good amount of attention paid to the raiders, Halleck being frustrated that Robert Shank, commanding the department, could not bring them to heel. In that regard, the raid was successful, although West Virginia would officially become a state a month later, not too much worse for wear. I'm sure you have had enough of raiding for one day. We had an in-depth look at Grierson's raid, which directly affects Grant's operations on the west side of the Mississippi. The Jones and Bowdoin raid is underway in West Virginia as well. Next week, we're going to check in to see Grant accomplishing his goal of crossing the Mississippi. We will also talk about action in Missouri, as well as give a good setup to the Battle of Chancellorsville. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>